Engaging Leader, Episode 176. Stop networking. Instead, start applying network science to transform your career and leadership. Leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. I wasn't sure whether to call this episode Stop Networking, Start Applying Network Science, or instead to call it how to be a decent human being to friends and friends of friends. And I think you'll discover why as we get into this conversation. This interview is going to be about a book that's not like any networking book you've read or ignored before. In fact, it's not about networking. It's about how networks actually work. To a lot of us, networking seems like an insincere way to manipulate relationships for personal gain. And yet, there is a significant body of research that demonstrates that making and strengthening connections to others is vitally important for our professional success. Think about any leader you've had. You want them to be good at making and strengthening connections. When you have a leader who does that, it's better for you too. And so, as leaders, this is an important topic for us. Uh, to help our teams, to teach to our teams, and then just to continue cultivating our own career. Being connected to a strong network provides major advantages. For example, shots at career, key career opportunities, access to diverse skills and perspectives, the ability to learn private information, and the type of expertise and influence that makes it easier to attain power. But what if the advice we've all heard about networking was wrong? What if it isn't about introducing yourself to strangers at cocktail parties or handing out business cards or signing up for the latest tool? All those things that just to a lot of us seem icky, maybe unless we're super extroverts. But instead, what if what's really important is getting the full picture of the existing network that's already around you? I am super stoked to have back on the show David Burkus to talk about his latest book, Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks That Can Transform Your Life and Career. This is David's fourth, wow, his fourth appearance on Engaging Leader. He's one of my favorite podcasters out there, as well as one of my favorite uh, authors. Um, His own podcast is Radio Free Network. I encourage you to check that out. I'll provide a link to it in our show notes. And he's been with us uh, ever since back on episode 61 of Engaging Leader to talk about his book, The Myths of Creativity, and talking about innovation and, and generating new ideas in that book. He was back in episode 134 to talk about Under New Management, uh, that book with all sorts of great new business uh, tips about leadership and business management. And then more recently in episode 151, talking about working smarter, not harder, productivity hacks to get more and better work done in less time. Today we're going to talk about his new book, and it's full of entertaining case studies and scientific research about what leads to true success, what we can learn from network science. And you're going to love what you learn, not just because it works, but because It looks a lot less like collecting business cards and making random introductions and a lot more like fostering authentic connections, seeking out diverse new voices, 
being curious and generous, and basically being a decent human being. David, welcome back to Engaging Leader. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me back. That's, that's the big honor, right? It's easy to get on a podcast once. It's very hard to get invited back. It means I behaved myself. <laughs> you did, and you were a lot of fun. David, networking seems to many of us to be like ugh, a yucky, insincere way to manipulate relationships for personal gain. What's, what's up with that? What's the truth behind it? Yeah. So um, one of my favorite studies in, in Friend of a Friend is this study that looked at, it compared people who had to recall a time when they had to reach out to make a professional connection. And then, um, and then people who had to uh, reach out to make a personal connection, right? And then it gave them a bunch of sort of tests afterwards to get kind of a back end read on their mood. What they found was that people that had to think about instrumental or professional networking were more likely to have subconscious thoughts of aspiring to be clean. In other words, networking was making them feel dirty on a subconscious level, right? And mm -hmm. I think that resonates <laughs> with a lot of people's approach, right? Fundamentally, I think we have the wrong mental model um, from networking. So, so most people, if I if I use this term networking, it's a ten letter word. Pretty sure it's ten letters. It's ten letter word. People <laughs> treat it like a four letter word, right? Yeah. Yeah. Be because when I say it, people are thinking about going to that cocktail party, that networking mixer thing, right? Running around trying to meet as many new people as possible. Usually, taking some advice that they've read in I call them networking advice books. I'm trying to create a new category of networking books that are not advice but are science. But I call them networking advice books right? Which is one guy or girl's experience about how to give an elevator pitch or remember someone's name or stuff like that. Um, so they go to that event. They're trying to meet new people. They're trying to apply that person's advice. And then they're wondering why they're feeling so inauthentic and weird. Like, well, mm. two reasons. Like, number one, if your only goal is to just sort of meet new people so that you can find some use for them in the immediate, then yeah, you're taking advantage of them. But number two, and probably one of the big overlooked ones, is that you feel inauthentic because you're trying to apply someone else's advice. You know, advice is great. It's great to get people's perspective on how they've done things and how they would do things in the future, but you are not that person, right? Advice is autobiographical and you're a different person, sometimes with different circumstances, different personalities, different work experiences. And so, you know, my big theory is that we need sort of a fundamental redefinition that networking is not about adding new people to your contacts app on your phone, right? Or adding LinkedIn connections. Networking should be about understanding the network that you're already in. You don't grow a network. You don't have a network. You already exist inside of a network. And your goal should be to get a map of it that's as accurate as possible and figure out how to navigate that network that you're a part of um, appropriately. So how do, how do you do that? Well, again, you got to break out of taking people's advice and you've got to study what is, what do I know about networks that can help me map mine? And so that's really the goal for friend of a friend is there are, there's been 50 uh, plus years of research in network science, exploring um, all sorts of networks, human networks, yes, but also computer networks, uh, electrical grids, right? Uh, e ecosystem like food chain networks, all of these different types of networks. And they all share a couple things in common. We found some truths to be universally true about every type of network. And so the goal in Friend of a Friend is to go, here's what we know about how networks work so you can help map your network and then help sort of put it to work for you or help draw value uh, from the value that's already in the network. But you do that only by, you know, stop focusing on you and stop focusing on adding new connections and instead focus on this entire network and how can I serve it so that later it can serve me. You just used a term, uh, the term instrumental networking. And 
Tell us the difference between that and personal networking, because when I understood that, I was actually able to relax a bit and start enjoying the book because I thought, okay, this is about being real and being just being a decent human being as opposed to taking advantage of people. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a reason the book is called Friend of a Friend. There's a couple of reasons, but one of the primary is that it should remind you of the, your network of friends, right? So personal networking. That and we do a lot of this instinctively. Like we know who our friends are, who's connected to who. We know kind of who are close friends and who are far away friends, and all of that sort of stuff. And then for some reason, when we flip it into the professional, we add this this element of like. Well, uh, people that I meet, I need to figure out how I can be useful to them or they can be useful to me inside of five minutes, which no one ever says that has to be the case. We just all do it, right? Mm -hmm. We filter people through that idea. Um, Or we ask, so what do you do? And if it's not similar enough to like our industry, we just ignore those people. Those are all, that's a very instrumental approach. And I mean, professional networking can be different from instrumental networking, right? This idea that it's just about the transaction. It's just about understanding who can help you, et cetera. The problem I think for a lot of people is that it's not, it's not different. And so my goal, once you start learning how networks work, the way that you treat your professional network is going to look an awful lot like the way that you treat uh, your, your friendship network. And in fact, I don't really believe there's much of a difference, right? And, and as we explore sort of down in one of the later chapters in the book, it, it pays to get to make your work friends personal and your personal friends work related. It, it really benefits you. So, you know, that's kind of that big goal is we're talking about all networks. You could find this advice useful for just your friends, but I hope you take a more friendship approach to even your professional network. Yeah, there was somewhere in there I started to realize that an easy way to see this difference was just in how many of us handle Facebook versus LinkedIn. And like Facebook is sort of, um, it's there's a fun factor in that, and you just are casually <laughs> enjoying these people. In fact, you know, at any point when, let's say you're bored in line at a grocery store, you might whip out your smartphone and just start, hey, what's going on I'm with my friends on Facebook? But LinkedIn always feels like uh, it's something I have to do for work reasons. Right. Yeah. No. And, and in fact, the study that I'm referring to about sort of feeling dirty, they also had sort of a follow up round where that's specifically how they judge the difference between personal and professional networking was LinkedIn versus Facebook. Right. Um, the, the good news is we're actually seeing a bit more like LinkedIn and I don't want to comment too much on sort of technology, et cetera, but because uh, it always changes. Right. LinkedIn, at least as, as we're recording this, appears to be trying to do a little more of what Facebook does well with updates and um, newsfeed and commenting and that sort of stuff to, to draw people back to the site to have sort of conversations there. And we're seeing more and more people kind of do that, which I, so I hope that sort of, again, blurs that line. But, you know, for the longest time, LinkedIn was like that thing that you created because some recruiter told you to build one. <laughs> and then you just ignored it. And every couple of days, you might get an email in your inbox uh, reminding you that so-and-so has invited to connect with you and you don't even sort of know who they are, but they boast having 15,000 LinkedIn <laughs> connections. Um, you know, and people like that are definitely what are sort of poisoning the, um, the, they're the bad apples that are sort of spoiling the bunch. Right. But, um, fundamentally, I think it's, I think it's possible in all these networks to have the same, uh, mentality and one that's based in, again, that sort of science of how networks work, not just in, okay, it's all about running up my count. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we instinctively knew that in Facebook, that the goal wasn't to just be as connected to as many people as possible. Cause there's no value if you're not, don't have a sort of personal relationship with them. I think LinkedIn should be the same way. And in fact, there's a lot of research that suggests that unless you're using a- any online social media, unless you're using it as a supplement 
supplement to your existing offline network, then you're really sort of doing yourself a disservice. It's not as effective a return on time spent. Uh, in some cases, it's actually going to make you feel lonelier and less connected to the world, even though you're you know connected to supposedly more people, but they're all really just pixels. Um, so there's a lot of research that says that this is not a replacement for, it's a supplement to what you're doing in offline real world networks. You know, whether it's in online networks like LinkedIn or Facebook or offline, there's also this, this myth that friend of a friend, uh, cancels out or shows the science disproves it about how running up a whole bunch of contacts, just simply knowing a lot of people is going to help achieve standout performance. And it's like, it's, it's when you're at that networking event and you get somebody that's just like running around trying to collect as many business cards as possible and trying to make sure they talk to as many important people as possible, that, that doesn't work in networking, does it? No, I mean, it, it, it really doesn't. There's definitely people that are, um, we call them super connectors. It's a network science term, although it's sort of leaked over into the networking advice books too. There's definitely people that have a disproportionate um, number in their network, right, than, than most people. And, and so it can be easy to sort of to look at them and then think that's the goal, but it's really not. One of the th most fascinating insights to me in the entire book is um, a, co a couple different lessons around six degrees of separation, or maybe maybe people have heard it as six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right, right from, the, <laughs> from the game. And the truth is when you dive into it, I mean, people literally took, researchers actually took the, the database of Hollywood and who was connected to who via acting in movies, et cetera. And they found that essentially there's nothing special about Kevin Bacon. In terms of most connections, meaning uh, mo highest number of actors or actresses that he's also been in films with, uh, Kevin Bacon is actually the 669th <laughs> most connected actor, right? And while that seems weird, but it's actually really good news, right? It's good news because it says that uh, you don't need a network like Kevin. Actually, I guess it says that even if you have a network as small as Kevin Bacon's, uh, you can still sort of be you're far more connected through one or two degrees of separation to everybody that you need. I actually think the majority of people already have between their existing people that they're aware of, their weak ties, which are people they're connected to but have probably neglected, and the people that are one or two degrees of separation out, you already have everything in your network that you need for a lasting and fulfilling and successful career. So running up the numbers is not necessarily going to be all that effective. It's far better to sort of pay attention to that network you're already in, start exploring it a bit more, letting those um, connections come as you sort of explore it organically. And like I said, you are, if you exist inside of a network, that network is already powerful enough to serve you for most people. I mean, if, if, if you're a, a hermit that's been living, you know, in a, in a monastery in Belgium for, <laughs> for, for 30 years, okay, you are the exception that proves the rule. But if you're active and employed and you're, you're engaging in even the smallest sort of scale, you probably have between your, your close friends, your weak ties and your people that are a few degrees of separation, you have all of the power and value in the network that you need for a successful fulfilling career. You just need to learn how to work it a bit better. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that six degrees of separation because the the chapter on that was, in addition to what you just said about hey hey even Kevin Bacon we, we don't even have to have a better a better network than Kevin Bacon, but um tell us about the research that six degrees is actually overstating it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it depends on when you say overstating. It sort of depends on your level of connection, right? So, okay. So I guess we should back up and go. Where did six degrees of separation even come from, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was sort of. 
uh, a a urban myth and a real study at the, around the same time. Um, so we've all sort of been in that situation where we're you know on vacation in uh, I already picked on Belgium, so let's go with Austria. Um, we're we're on vacation in Austria and we meet someone who's you know from Chicago and you're like oh Chicago yeah I've got a couple of friends there and you start naming them and they're like oh yeah I know and, so, and you're like oh what a small world right <laughs> we've all been in that um, thing. And a, a number of years ago, uh, a, a researcher by the name of Stanley Milgram, you might actually remember him from the famous sort of Stanford prison experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, needless to say, he's got some pretty unorthodox and interesting studies. This one is probably the tamest. <laughs> Decided to kind of test that idea. And so what he did was he started a, 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 an experiment. He recruited volunteers and basically asked them, get this letter to this stockbroker in, in Boston. I'm oversimplifying the study, by the way. So if you're a, a, an experimental nerd like me, don't hold this against me <laughs> uh, because we're rare and I want, <laughs> I want to get to the point. And so, they, you know, and they said, if you don't know him, right, if you know him, send it right to him. If you don't know him, send it to who you think would be the next person in line. Okay. So um, they do that. And it turns out of the letters that arrive, most of the letters don't, but of the letters that arrive, it took about five to six intermediaries to get uh, to that stockbroker. Right. Okay. So now we have the six degrees of separation, right? Um, this is where six degrees of Kevin Bacon comes from, et cetera. Fast forward into the technology era, a researcher by the name of Duncan Watts and his crew decide to recreate that experiment using the internet. And they find, okay, yeah, it's about the same. It's about five to six, skewing a little closer to five now. Um, well, fast forward another couple of years and Facebook decides to do the experiment, but they actually do it a little bit differently rather than recruiting volunteers and then saying, get this message to this person. They say, um, they just sort of map, they have the the capacity, the big data and analytics to just map the entire network of the 2 billion people that have a Facebook account. How connected are we? Um, and they arrive at somewhere between four and five. And actually they do this study every couple of years and it's skewing closer and closer to four. Right. So a couple thoughts, my immediate reaction when I heard that was, well, yeah, but it's two people versus 7.4 billion. But then I started thinking about methodology and what you actually realize is that what Facebook was able to do is use algorithms to figure out the, the shortest possible path. What most people are not able to do is find the shortest possible path themselves. In fact, there's a whole branch of study now in network science called search, search in network science, um, or search in networks to, to kind of explore this phenomenon. Facebook could find the most direct route. Now, what does that mean for practice? practical life. It means a couple things. It means that it's probably shorter than six degrees because if you find the optimal route, it's going to be a little shorter. It also means that usually when we think, okay, when, when we have to pick one person who is our, our linchpin, our connection, our, this is the introduction we need in order to go further. Most of the time we're wrong. And so one of the things I encourage a lot of people to do is when you're thinking about, okay, here's what I need to do, et cetera, a lot of people will, you know, they'll LinkedIn stalk somebody or they'll try and figure out who's connected to them that they already know. And then they'll ask for the introduction of that specific person. And that's a mistake for a couple reasons. The biggest, like we just talked about, is that that person may not actually be the person you need to meet. The other is that the person you're asking for the introduction for might not feel comfortable vouching for you, right? Because Mm -hmm. every introduction is also a recommendation. And, and so it's better to start asking lots of different people, hey, who do you know in blank, with blank being whatever industry or sector or geography or city, you know, whatever you're trying to meet more people in. Let them give you a range of names. All of those people in the range of names are probably going to be people they're more comfortable introducing you to. And what you walk out with is several different people to start working, sort of trying that angle, trying for introductions. And if you take that sort of broader approach, that it's not about finding one, it's about sort of finding the many 
you're going to find a better path to whatever you're going for. But you're also sort of opening yourself up to a little bit more serendipity of who might be the best possible connection as opposed to that one person you're so focused on. So as an example, just to break that down, uh, I remember somebody who her dream was to do consulting her, for her a consulting client would be Disney. She always wanted to do work for Disney. Um, so she rather than look at her LinkedIn profile and find people that know somebody at Disney and say, hey, can you introduce me to the vice president at Disney? Um, how, 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 how would they word that and what would they do? So I would, I, again, I would start with that. Okay, who, who do you know who's it, who works at Disney, right? Either the parks or, or, or whatever. And I would ask that of multiple people. What you're probably going to do is a couple things. You're going to get a range of different names, right? Mm-hmm. In particular, when you start seeing the same one or two names popping up on different people's lists, that's probably your indication that those are going to be the strongest connections. Because not only can you sort of make a, a recommendation, then you also know who is connected to them for, or, or excuse me, not only can you ask for an introduction, you also know who's connected to them for recommendations and that sort of a thing. You're also probably going to find people sort of you weren't expecting um, that are connected to Disney, right? So when you ask, when you just sort of look it up, like go on LinkedIn and type in like connections who are related to Disney, or you find the vice president of HR at Disney, et cetera, uh, and you work your way backwards, that's helpful, but you're only really going to find one or two paths instead of sort of figuring all of this out. Um, I mean, I'll give you a great example, um, from, from friend of a friend that's actually the reverse. It's, <laughs> it's someone leaving Disney. <laughs> <laughs> And it was, it's actually, she didn't leave, she left Disney a little bit earlier, but Michelle McKenna Doyle uh, was, is a chief information officer. She's a chief information officer at the NFL. When she was hired, she was the highest paid, uh, or excuse me, highest ranking female executive in the league, probably highest paid too, but I can't verify that. Um, and what happened is essentially she worked as a CFO, a CIO for Disney, for Universal Studios, later for this energy company that merged and she was essentially out of a job. So she is playing around on her fantasy football league, of all things, and she sees this ad for the NFL. And it's it's the job description matches CIO, but they're using VP or director level knowledge and pay. So she, she's sort of like, they need a CIO, they need me, but they don't know they need me. So how can I not just find who's the recruiter, right? But how can I find a powerful enough connection to the NFL to get in front of them and convince them that like, you need me and you need me at CIO level. So she starts working her network and exploring. She's asking, who do you know in? She's asking, she's going back to weak ties. And she finds a former colleague who had moved over into executive search. And his firm wasn't handling the search for the NFL, but he knew the firms that were connected to the NFL that had worked with them in the past. And so he introduces them to her, um, those new firms to her. She starts kind of interviewing and connecting with her. And next thing she knows, she's in front of the, the whole hiring board at the NFL. She's convincing them, including the commissioner, that they need her and they need her at a CIO level, et cetera. They up the offer. They give it to her. Um, I think it's actually really funny because all of her brothers played football and never made it into the NFL. And then she did. (laughs) I love it. But it comes from that idea of, okay, I need, it's not about finding that one path. It's about exploring multiple possible avenues. And I mean, would you ever expect it in a million years that one of your former colleagues in the IT department at Walt Disney World would flip over and go into executive search <laughs> and now be your connection? You wouldn't, right? Mm-hmm. That's not something, if you're trying to work direct lines, that's not something you would have ever thought to do. But if you take it from a broad and open approach, you're much more likely to find those connections. You just used a term... Weak ties. And I'd like you to talk about that because this was one of the things in the book that was totally new to me and also just 
opened up my, uh, just, uh, I guess, took the lid off of a longtime concern I've, I've had. So tell us about weak ties. Yeah. And so I have to, um, I, you know, I have to specify here. I'm not the first person to talk about weak ties, right? There's, there's, it, this is probably the only insight from network science that has branched over into networking advice books, but most of them get it wrong. So it's no wonder that you're confused, right? So <laughs> if you think about a, um, if, if you think about a, your network as a three-dimensional object, not a list of contacts that you're just trying to add names to, but as a three-dimensional object, then you will, you'll visualize yourself kind of in the center of this network and there will be ties that are, and if you have, by the way, if you have no idea, if you're listening and you're like, have no clue, run over to Google images, type in the word network. You'll see lots of clip art. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you'll see lots of people connected close to you. And then you'll see a lot of people further out, like geographically more distant from you. And these are people that, you know, translate distance into time. These are just people you don't talk to all that often, right? So your weak ties, there's a common misconception in a lot of networking advice books that your weak ties are your friend of a friend. That's not accurate. Your weak ties are people you actually already know. They're acquaintances. They're that guy you see at the gym and maybe you spot each other every once in a while, but you know his name and where he works and you don't even know if he's married or not or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're that person that you work with, but they work on a different floor. So you only ever see them when there's cake in the break room, right? They're, they're, those are your weak ties. Um, there's also a form of weak tie known as a dormant tie. And these are potentially the most potent. A dormant tie is a person who's become a weak tie because they were stronger and then they, you and, and they fell out of touch, right? So you changed jobs, they moved cities, you know, they got fired, whatever it is. Sometimes there are reasons people are dormant ties and we don't want to touch that. But, um, fundamentally like that's, um, that's what we're talking about when we say dormant ties. Now, what's interesting about these is we have a tendency to, when we need counsel, when we need to find new opportunities, when we need jobs, whatever, we have a tendency to only kind of go to our close connections. And then when those burn out, we start jumping on like monster.com or we start randomly searching the internet. In reality, some of the most potent people in our networks for new information, which includes job opportunities, but also advice, counsel, new perspectives, et cetera, are those weak and dormant ties, precisely because they are so far away from you in the network. Those people that are close to you are people that all kind of know each other. They all kind of have access to the same information. And if they're aware of something, chances are you're already even aware of it, right? Um, so the, the, the term that Ronald Burt, the sociologist, uses redundant, right? They're mm-hmm. redundant. And so it's your weak and dormant ties that are the ones that are far more likely to provide you that new information. The key, though, where everybody kind of fails is the other thing that happens in networking advice books beyond just not actually being accurate with what a weak tie is, is they'll say that and then people file that away in their mind and go, great. Well, when I'm laid off, I will reach back out to my weak ties. It's too late. Right. The key is to be sort of constantly refreshing those connections, setting a, a goal or an interval and, and checking back in with a lot of your weak ties frequently. And that way, A, you can start finding ways potentially to provide them value first. Uh, but B, when it comes time that there's an actual sort of need, you're not trying to warm up a stranger and be uh, and beg them for a favor. You're just having one more in a series of conversations where you check back in with people every all the time. And to go back to sort of close this giant loop. We already do this with our real friends, right? We already have those friends that we call them and we catch up every once in a while. And there's no, it's not awkward. There's no offense. There's no like, oh, I'm so sorry that we don't talk to each other more often. We just know that's life and that, and that we still want to have a relationship with those people, but we can't see them every single day for some reason or another. So where do you do that in our friendship network? I'm just talking about taking that same level of interest in people and a desire to maintain the relationship in our professional network as well. 
Yeah, I probably like a lot of people have felt sheepish anytime it occurs to me that, oh, so-and-so I haven't talked to in five years, 10 years, 15 years. And, you know, they popped into my mind because I'm going to be in, let's say, Chicago. And, uh, you know, but gee, that they're going to feel like, hey, where have you been? But every time I've had that, when whether it's picking up the phone or sending an email to somebody, it's they're always glad to hear from you. And so I imagine for anyone who's, let's say, job searching, that always seems like you're at the most vulnerable. And like, why? So, so I'm job searching. Why am I just now reaching out to this person after 15 years? But they're, they're usually glad to hear from you. But it's still better to, in the book, you talk about how it's better to be doing this on an ongoing basis. So what, what tips would you have for people to keep those weak ties stronger? Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. That it, if, you, if you are in that situation where you need the help, like there's nothing you can do, just sort of swallow it and trust us that they'll be happy to hear from you anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but better to not be in that situation. And you mentioned one of the two things that, that I like to recommend to people most often, and you mentioned it and you also, you really do do it, which is sort of hijacking your travel. Right. So when I, uh, I travel a lot for, for what I do and what I, one of the things that I try and do is when I go to a city, I also live in the middle of the country. I don't live in like New York city or LA where, uh, there's always something going on and always an opportunity to see new contact. So when I travel, um, I will try and land in that city as quickly as possible to free up, you know, a, an afternoon coffee or a dinner or something like that. Um, and I'll try and whatever meeting I'm there for schedule two or three other sit downs with people to reconnect. Now you actually did this to me once because right. you were in my city and that was like the first thing you thought of was like, Oh, here's who I know that lives in the city. Let's go get breakfast. And we did. And it was great. And I still go to that same breakfast joint and it's still awesome by the way. So yeah. whenever you come back, we can hit it up again. Sounds good. The other thing, remember we were talking about earlier about how social media it should be a tool to supplement existing offline relationships, not replace them. So most people's complaint, uh, besides privacy, most people's complaint about <laughs> things like Facebook and LinkedIn nowadays is, oh, my newsfeed is just cluttered with people that I don't really know and I can't even see my best friends and blah, blah, blah. Well, those newsfeeds are actually a really good opportunity to reconnect. I mean, if you think about it, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, people uh, use those tools to announce what's going on in their life. And your newsfeed, again, LinkedIn or Facebook, et cetera, is just a stream of what's going on in people's life. The key is to sort of use that information as the springboard to engage in a deeper conversation, right? So you mm -hmm. see someone post something like, hey, um, we just got, I just got a new job. We're moving to Chicago because of that new job. You, you can do what most people do and, and write congratulate, congratulations and click like and then just get drowned out in the people um, that you never even really get noticed. Or you can take that information and then go to a deeper medium. So you can send them an email or a text message or a phone call, whatever the right medium for your relationship is. And you do a couple different things at once. Yes, obviously say congratulations. Just saw that you're moving to Chicago. Fantastic. Uh, just congratulations. I'm so proud of the, the new gig. Then offer some sort of piece of advice or a little sort of micro value piece. So uh, let's use where I'm using Chicago, so I'm going to run with it. Uh, so you might say something like, by the way, when you get there, don't waste your time. The best deep dish is Gino's East, uh. right? Uh, or Lumalnati's. <laughs> They're kind of the same pizza. Um, so you might say something like that. And then you might say like, besides that, what else is new with you? Or, you know, or, Hey, we should really, uh, connect before you make the move. You know, what's a good time for you? Any sort of invitation to, to keep the conversation going, whether that be by trading emails back and 
forth or whether you actually do set up a time uh, to connect. So there's sort of three pieces, right? You're, you're acknowledging that information they just broadcasted. You're providing some little piece of value and then you're inviting to a deeper conversation. Now, most of us at some point in our day are scrolling mindlessly through those news feeds anyway. This is just an opportunity to take 90 seconds Right and use it uh, to reach back out to uh, a weak tie. So I try and do this about once a week or so. In a good week, we could do I could do probably three or four or one a day. But really, I'm sort of like if it, if I can think back and if I can remember the last time it happened, I feel like I've got a good habit. Right. So that's usually three to four days. If I'm doing it every three or four days, perfect. Um, I'm I'm sort of adequately reaching back out and I'm using a technology that I'm on anyway, and I'm using it to supplement my offline relationship. So it's a really helpful way to do it. So you can do it virtually, like we just talked about, or like you said, make sure you sort of hijack or tag on the travel you're going to do anyway. It's a great opportunity. Hmm, love it. Well, since we have a lot of leaders listening to the show, there's there's definitely a, a topic that we should cover, um, and that's uh, homophily. And uh, with, with our network not being as diverse as it could be, and both for ourselves and our people, how, tell us about the homophily trap and how to avoid that. Yeah, so uh, homophily is a really interesting. For, first of all, it's a fancy word, isn't it? It's, it's like great. It's a lo- I love it. Yeah, it's a great word. But you can sound so much smarter. Um, <laughs> I mean, it is. It's a it's a twelve dollar word for the saying "birds of a feather flock together," right? Or like attracts like, or any of those sort of things. What I think is most interesting about it, when we look at it from a network science perspective, you find that it's actually a network problem. So most people, it's two thousand eighteen. Most people aspire to have a network uh, that's more diverse than they are. That's more uh, has all alternate perspectives, especially leaders, you know, you want to see the whole horizon. So you want to see what's going on in a variety of perspectives. You need a diverse network for that. Unfortunately, what tends to happen is that our initial small sort of micro inclinations to be around people with shared work histories or who grew up in the same area are just people that we have more in common with. We have this sort of small desire to spend a disproportionate amount of time with them. And what happens is that over time that compounds. So it doesn't start out that way. Like people, people actually can actively aspire to have more of it. And then it compounds because the people that are close to you are going to be your number one source of introductions to new people. And if you're like the people that are close to you and the people that are close to you are like the people that are close to them who they're introducing you to, then everybody's kind of similar. And so you might be thinking you're growing a network, you're meeting more people, et cetera. But in reality, you're creating more and more redundancy and you find yourself in that homophily problem over time. You look to the left and to the right and realize that you don't have as diverse a network as you actually need. And I mean, history is full of examples, whether it be business history, governmental history, military history, et cetera, of leaders making terrible decisions because they didn't have access to accurate enough information. Where do you get that information? You get it from the network. And so if you don't have a broad and deep and diverse network, you are going to get uh, limited information and you're probably going to make poor decisions. But the, the trick is that it's not having an open-mindedness to diversity is not enough. Having mm. of diversity perspectives or, or ethnic or racial, whatever, none of that, an open-mindedness to that is not enough. You need to sort of actively be in, and intentionally be spending a disproportionate amount of time with people who are different from you so that the new introductions and new information flow more from those people than the people that you naturally are going to have an inclination to. And only by doing that do you grow a network that is broad enough and, and diverse enough to get all of that information to get diverse new connections instead of more of the same old. Uh, it's a very deliberate act, and there's a lot of of leaders that find themselves thinking they have it and actually don't. So it's the first step would really be to sort of audit and look, and do I have a diverse enough network that I need? And the second is to take those deliberate steps to spend more time with the people that are most unlike us so that we can get more of those connections that we need. 
Hmm. Yeah, you've got a lot of lot more tips on that in in the book. Um, Kate, what? So if you just sort of if someone's listening to this and they say, "Geez, how, that might be me," what's what's one tip to 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 do that? Because I think you're you, you would naturally feel a little bit uncomfortable. The reason why you have this birds of a feather flock together network is because that's just that's where your comfort takes you. So how how would you actually take a step to become more diverse in your network? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the first thing is probably that audit, right? So I would, what I would do is probably look at what I tell a lot of people to do is look at your conversation history, right? So go back through your sent emails, not your received, your sent, cause that's people you're actually talking to, um, go look on social media and who you're interacting with, et cetera. Make a list of about the, the last, let's say 25 people, two dozen or so people that you've had conversations with. And then for whatever you feel like you need a little bit more representation in whatever perspective. So it can be um, ethnic and racial diversity, it could be gender diversity, it could be ideological diversity, it could be diversity of experience, like work history, whatever it is, sort of add those as columns to your list. And then actually go in and look up, okay, is this person similar or different than me? Is it similar and different than me? And if you have too much, you'll find pretty quickly that, okay, maybe I am that person that is too similar. Um, the other thing that you'll get from that audit, though, is you'll get the list of – there will be – I mean most people will have uh, people – most likely most of the conversations that are too similar to. But there will be four or five people that are different enough. Now those people should be sort of in the front of your mind as the beginning of your deliberate effort to have more conversations with people from that area, to ask for introductions from people from that area for you, et cetera. So, um, and again, it's not, I'm not saying like, go crash a meeting of people that are the exact opposite than you. Um, I'm just saying you probably already have two or three in your network, but that number needs to be higher. So start with the two or three that you do have and just really pay a little bit more deliberate attention to cultivating those relationships as opposed to the ones that come naturally to you. I just get excited anytime science proves once again, that being a decent human being leads to success. And even though this is a book about networking. It's really not about networking. It's about networking science. And even though we've used some examples about, hey, how can this help me get a job or whatever, um, what the book shows over and over again is just being a decent human being, being curious about other people, being open to other people, being generous with your uh, how you can help them with your introductions to people you know, that it, it's uh, you're just um, interacting with people in a good way, and it tends to come back and, and science shows over and over again uh, that it, it leads to a great amount of personal and career success. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, be a decent human being is too short to fit in a book. <laughs> um, so I had to write a few more words. But like, like, you know, like we said at the top, the book's called Friend of a Friend. And I want people to realize that there's this blurred uh, and increasingly blurry, but still very thick line between the, the personal relationships and the professional ones. And you may want to still keep them in two different buckets, but you should probably treat them both the same. Right. Uh, and I'm not talking about like, you know, subject matter and things that are going to get you called into HR. But what I mean is that in terms of being generous, uh, understanding who is a friend, who's a friend of a friend, who's connected to who. Right. Uh, taking care of people will, uh, in addition to asking to be taken care of all of these things that you do naturally with the relationships that you care about. Your friends are also the relationships in your professional life that you should care about. Like the example that I use often is people will say, OK, there's a ton of insights from network science. There's a lot of prescriptions that come from that on things that I can do. But uh, but it, then it feels so weird because now I'm being intentional about it. I'm being it's like a, it's like intentionality and authenticity are two different things. 
And that's, that's simply not true. Like if you're married, try telling your spouse, you know, I missed our anniversary because I didn't want to be too uh, intentional about it. I want our relationship to just be organic and natural, like not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Why is any relationship any different, right? If you care about somebody, care enough about them to be intentional and in showing that you care for them and provide value for them, et cetera. We know it's true with our close relationships and especially our closest relationships. We know it's true with our friends. It needs to be true with our work friends too. The book again is Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Your Career. There's so much more in the book that we haven't been able to get to in this interview. Definitely encourage people to get their hands in that book. Go to davidberkus.com for that. But David, we're obviously, anybody who's been listening loves audio. And uh, so tell us about your audio course, uh, How to Connect. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So if you're listening to this, yeah, like, like Jesse said, you're part of a very special club. You're part of the end of the podcast club. You're part of that rare breed of people that can actually put up with me and Jesse for this entire 30 minutes. And if you do, then I put together something I think you're going to really enjoy, teach you a little bit more about the ideas in the book, et cetera. It's an audio course I call How to Connect. It's based on network science, based on the research and insights and friend of a friend, and it's how to give and get the introductions that you need uh, for your professional career. So how do you give, how do you properly introduce two people? How do you also feel out your network and search out the introductions that you need, which we touched on a teeny bit, but it will go way more in depth than that. Um, And because you're part of the end of the podcast club, that's yours totally free. It's actually a pre-order bonus that we're giving to a lot of people if they buy the book. But if you're listening, you can get it for free. DavidBerkus.com slash engaging leader is the place to go uh, for that. Um, again, like I said, you'll, you'll if you like podcasts, if you're part of the end of the podcast club, you'll you'll probably love it. If you hate this, I don't know why you're still listening, but <laughs> you'll hate it. You'll hate that too. So don't go to DavidBerkus.com slash engaging leader. But if you do, you're going to love it. So check it out there. Fantastic. And it's a, I have to say, it's a very enjoyable uh, read, too. It's full of science and full of tips, but also full of great stories. David Berkus, thanks for coming back and joining us again on Engaging Leader. Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. If you didn't catch the uh, website information that David was sharing there, just go to our website at engagingleader.com and you can see the show notes for this episode and we'll put all the links that we talked about to the audio course, to the book itself, as well as to David's social media information. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications. My colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, including talent management, workforce health engagement, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harris and our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, JJ Leahy, our social media guru, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, in the 21st century, the real movers and shakers aren't just leaders, they're engagers. Engagers.